Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. This is the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which, is, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are our sure and steadfast anchor. You are the unchanging one. You are the one in which we can place our hope. We can have confidence and assurance, Father, because you are completely trustworthy. Father, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would reveal yourself to us again. That we would know your love for us in your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been progressing through Hebrews here. And we've talked a lot about what you must do. A lot about what we, what we must do. We've been admonished to endure. We've been encouraged to pay much closer attention to the gospel message lest we drift away. To exhort one another while today is still today. To strive to enter into God's rest. To go on to maturity. Just last week we were exhorted not to be sluggish but to be imitators of faithful believers. But today is a little different. Today isn't going to be about what we must do. Today we will talk about who the triune God is and what he has done for us. Today's message might disappoint those who hunger and thirst for application, because with this passage, there is nothing to do except perhaps the most important thing, and that is to worship God and give thanks. So I want us to come to this text with the mentality, not of what must I do, but what has God done for me? This passage is about trust. Now, there is a problem with trust. We lack it. The longer you live, the more you see that humans are unreliable. Not just people out there, but, but you and me. We're unreliable. We want to trust, uh, trust others, but it's not easy. And it's not made any easier by our collective lack of reliability. Well, let's start with the largest perpetrator of broken promises, the weatherman. <laughs> I mean, what kind of job is built upon being wrong? More seriously, how about the government? Pew Research reports that trust in government 
And the U.S. government, specifically, is at an all-time low. Some people trust religious leaders, famous religious leaders, many of whom are charlatans, who promise health and wealth if only you plant the seed of faith by giving. They will receive their just desserts, but in the meantime, they make promises and don't keep them. They are untrustworthy. This situation is bleak. Who can you trust? That matters. It matters knowing who you can trust because we, as people, we need hope. And not just the feeling of hope, but the confident assurance that the one making the promises will come through. So where can you put your hope? The Hebrews were tempted to go back to what they knew, to, to the temple worship, to sacrifices, to keeping the law. But the preacher, the writer here in Hebrews, he cautions, don't go back. Don't go back. Patiently wait for God to deliver you. And he will. There's only one whose promise and oath are unchangeable, whose purposes are unchangeable, whose character is so perfect that it's impossible to be anything other, to do anything other than to keep his word. There's only one who is the pinnacle and even the source of reliability and trustworthiness. There's only one whose guarantee makes every promise ironclad. It is, of course, the Lord God. And this leads us to hope, a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul and the storms of life. This is the message of Hebrews for us today. So let's look at the first point in our outlines, God's promise. Now, there are many great examples of faith from Scripture and from life. These are the greats of the faith who has... Verse 12, if you look just before, and verse 12 says, Through faith and patience inherit the promises. But perhaps there is no greater example than, of faith than Abraham. Picking up in verse 13, and, and then I'll just read all the way through vis, uh, verse 15. Please follow along in your, in your scriptures. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And what was God's promise? That he would make Abraham a great nation, and that all the families of the earth would, earth would be blessed through him. He makes that promise many times. The first time he does it is in Genesis 12. Then he does it again in Genesis 13 and 15 and 17. He says the promise four times. Abraham believed God, and he patiently waited. It was 25 years. Here's how much patient waiting Abraham had to go through. 25 years between the time when God made that first promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and when uh, he and Sarah received the miraculous birth of Isaac. Abraham's patient waiting makes the account, then, of his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, who was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise, it makes that account all the more poignant. Just recall what happened in Genesis 22. God calls out to Abraham and he says, 
Well, first of all, God calls out to Abraham, and Abraham simply says, here I am. God tells him, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go and sacrifice him. And on the way up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, imagine this exchange between Abraham and Isaac, as recorded in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. He says this, or it says this, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, the both of them together. After preparing the wood and then binding his son's arms and his legs, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? Laying the wood on top of him, fire in one hand, knife in the other. He lifts his knife to slaughter his promised son. God calls to Abraham. Guess what Abraham says again? Here I am. God replies, do not, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for no For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And it is at this point that God binds himself with more than just a promise, but with his oath. Verse 16 of that passage in Genesis, chapter 22, says this. God said, By by myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The significance is that while God repeated his promise to Abraham many times, here He seals it with an oath. By myself, I swear. And we'll unpack that a little bit more in the next point in your outline. Listen to what John Calvin says about Abraham's faith. When God promised countless offspring to Abraham, it seemed a thing incredible. Sarah had been through life barren. Both had reached a sterile old age when they were nearer the grave than to the conjugal bed. There was no vigor to beget children. When Sarah's womb, which had been barren through the prime of life, was now become dead, who could believe that a nation would proceed from them, equaling the stars in number and like the sand of the sea? It was indeed contrary to all reason. Yet Abraham looked for this and feared no disappointment because he relied on the word of God. Despite all these reasons why Abraham shouldn't have believed, he believed. Despite the fact that it took a long time, 25 years, that's easily a third of a life. Abraham relied on the word of God. 
The preacher gives us Abraham as the best example of faith in God, waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promises. Abraham is given as an example, but the real hero, the real hero of the story is God. God is the one promising. God is the one fulfilling. God is the one who is ultimately keeping faith. When it comes down to it, Abraham was actually just an observer and an onlooker to what God was doing through him. John MacArthur puts it like this, God expected many things of Abraham, but as far as fulfilling the promise was concerned, Abraham was but a spectator, watching what God was doing for him and through him. God had a predetermined purpose for Abraham, and this purpose was that Abraham would be blessed and that the world would be blessed through him. God's promises to Abraham were not about Abraham or his faith or his patience. God's promises were about himself his purposes, and his character. And so while we patiently wait for God to move in our lives, the lives of our loved ones, in our church, in our community, in our country, in our world, we know that it's not about us. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his purposes. So you see, we are prone to make God's providence about us. But it's not. A friend's daughter had her soccer practice canceled recently. She asked my friend, why did God cancel my soccer practice? It's a good question. What is he trying to do with my life or teach me? My friend wisely instructed his daughter. He said, I don't know what God may be doing, but chances are, sweetie, it's not about you. Chances are that he's working something other, some other thing that doesn't have much to do with you. What a valuable lesson to learn at such a young age. We are naturally inclined to think and feel that the world revolves around us, but it doesn't. Our hearts say God is doing this thing, this good thing or this bad thing, all for me, when in reality it may be all about somebody else. Yes, he's using it for you too, to grow you and build your testimony, but it's not primarily about you. Again, we are the star. We are the star of each one of our movies. But we know the real star, and frankly, the writer of the script, is God. Abraham knew this. He knew that it wasn't about him. And so he was able to submit to God, to pick up his family and leave Ur, to believe that God would do as he said, to walk up the mountain, to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son that he loved. Believing that God would provide a way somehow to simply say, here I am. God did provide a way and Abraham obtained the promise. Now I promised that we would unpack the oath, what God's oath was. And so let's do that now in point two of our outlines, God's oath. Um, now, some of you own your own home and, and you borrowed money to buy it. Home loans are, are difficult, or excuse me, are, are different than typical loans. If you weren't aware, the fact that you can borrow money for 30 years at rates currently roughly around 3%, that's bonkers. That really doesn't actually make a lot of sense. The only reason 
that the bank will lend you that kind of money for that amount of time is because your loan, most loans at least, are guaranteed by the U.S. government. For anybody here that's either done a non-conforming loan or maybe has done uh, or is a business owner and you've had to take out a loan for your business, what you find in those instances is that you've actually got to make a personal guarantee, meaning if you default on that loan, that means they're going to come after not just your house or if it's your business, your business, they're going to come after your personal assets as well. You've got to make a personal guarantee that you're going to repay the bank on that loan. And so maybe you could see where I'm going. The quality of the guarantor, the, 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 the worthiness, the trustworthiness of the guarantee really has a lot to do with how good your loan terms are. And that's why for a typical business loan, like if you were going to go buy a building, you might be able to get five years on that loan, maybe 10 years of term, but definitely not 30 years and definitely not at 3%. And that's because as great a person as you may be and as many assets as you have, you're not the U.S. government. You don't have as good a guarantee as they do. That's like what the preacher is talking about here in verse 16. People swear, this is what verse 16 says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In ancient times, oath were kind of a common legal device that gave comfort to the one receiving the promise that the promise keeper or promise maker would keep their word. Again, kind of similar to this idea of a guarantee behind the loan. People would swear by someone or something greater to kind of seal the deal. Oaths were serious business. If, if an oath was not kept, that person who made the oath would be liable to God. To take an oath was the, basically the same as putting your life on the line. Now look at verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God made an oath. By myself I have sworn, he said, to make sure that Abraham and his descendants in faith would know with a hundred percent assurance that his promises are sure. God desired to show more convincingly, and so he sealed his promise with an oath. And again, while all oaths were a kind of legal device, kind of like a contract that you might have or see today, God's oath was more than that. This wasn't the cold, calculating decision of a distant God. This wasn't his decision to sort of legally obligate himself to us. This was a matter of the very heart of God. Verse 17 says that God desired to show more convincingly, which is to say that God wanted to make it exceedingly, abundantly sure that we know his love for us, that, we would, that he would do far more than is necessary to make evident to his children that we are secure in his promises that he would go over and above and beyond measure, that we could be perfectly sure, so that we could plainly see, that it would be perfectly clear that we might be totally convinced of the surety of his promises. He's like a husband who wants his wife to know that she still has his heart, that his love for her is stronger than ever, and so he showers her with gifts 
affirms her with his words, affectionately cares for her, serving her needs, and ultimately he sacrifices his wants for her so that she would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves her. Now, with human husbands, this type of outpouring is generally the result of a previous misstep. But not so with God. It is impossible for God to mess up and seek reconciliation. He is perfect in all of his ways. And he is unchanging in all of his ways. James tells us that there is no variation or shadow due to change with God. Theologians call this God's immutability, his unchangeableness. You might think of it, we sang, great is thy faithfulness. This is God's faithfulness to us. I think A.W. Tozer is helpful here in kind of logicking through how is it that God cannot change. He points out that God cannot change because all change must be in one of three directions. All change must be in one of three directions. Either, number one, it's from better to worse. Number two, it's from worse to better. Or number three, it's from one form to another. In all of those cases, God's perfections rule out any of those. So consider this. It's another way to think about it. Start with the grass. It's actually starting to green up. But another seven, eight months from now, it will be dead again, or at least dormant. Then go a little higher to the trees. They last for many years, constantly cycling through change, though, bringing out new leaves, flowers, dropping them seven months, eight, eight months later. Go a little higher to the great sequoia tree. Not only is the sequoia one of the tallest trees, it lasts for millennia. Then think of the hills. They're higher and less apt to change than the trees. Nevertheless, winds and rain and floods do change the hills. Then think of the Rocky Mountains, which have no doubt been here since God spoke them into existence. Soar above the mountains to the planets, which seem to constantly change as they orbit the sun. But the stars and other galaxies seem fixed in place. The farther you go, the nearer you come to that which does not change. And beyond and behind all these is God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the unchanging God, His affection and love for His people is also Unchanging. It is absolutely fixed. And because he doesn't change, his purposes don't change. What he purposed to take place from before time has not changed. And what was his purpose? To redeem mankind and all of creation. Even before God made his oath. This is what's fascinating. Even before he made his oath, the descendants of Abraham have the utmost security because of the unchanging will of God. That makes his oath on top of his promises, even more amazing. It was totally unnecessary for him to do that. His promises were more than good enough. God cannot lie. It's kind of weird to say that God cannot or will not do something. I think, generally speaking, we don't like to put him in a box. But this is a time when it is wholly appropriate to place him squarely in the box of absolute and perfect integrity. He can't lie. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, 
and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? There are so many places in Scripture where God keeps his word, where he shows his faithfulness to his children. But my mind goes back to the book of Joshua. We know God's people were not perfect. But his promise to Abraham wasn't dependent on them. He said that he would bring them into the land and give them the land, and that's what he did. He caused Jericho to fall by people shouting and a handful of trumpets blasting. He caused the sun to stand still in the sky. He gave them victories over other people that had sought to destroy them. He kept his promises. And even though the Hebrews weren't perfect, remember how Achan took spoil from one of the battles and then in the next battle the Hebrews lost? They weren't perfect. But God's promise wasn't dependent on their faithfulness. Chapter 21 of Joshua and verse 45 sums it up beautifully. Not one word, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God never lies. Every word he says is truth. God's word is infallible. Everything he has said will come to pass, will come to pass. His promises are gold-plated and ironclad, but he made them doubly sure with his oath. I'm going to quote Calvin one more time because I just think he says it so well. The word of God, then, is a sure truth. And in itself authoritative, that is, it means that it's self-worthy of trust. But when an oath is added, it is an overplus, added to a full measure. We have then this strong consolation that God, who cannot deceive when he speaks, being content with making a promise, has confirmed it by an oath. Imagine that. God so deeply loves you. He so deeply loves you, beloved, that he wasn't content with just a promise. Even though that was more than enough, his heart is so for us and not against us that he was moved to seal it, seal his promise with an oath to bless his people. This is the heart of God for you. It reminds me of Luke 6 where Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Good measure. He's going to fill. The, the, the image here is that of a, of a basket and putting grain into that basket. He's going to fill that basket all the way up with a good measure, all the way over the top. Then he's going to press it down to compress the filling and make room for more. And then he's going to pour more on top. And then he's going to shake it to make sure there isn't any air bubbles, that everything is settled down as far as he can. And then he's going to pour more on top of that till it pours over into your lap. God's goodness doesn't stop when he gets to the top. It pours out over and over until it spills into our laps. This is the same 
This is the same as God's desire for us to be sure of his good, good promises to us. He wants it to overflow with certainty that we will know he will hold us fast. So what does that mean for us? Verse 18 tells us, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We talked about trust. We have great reason to hold fast to Jesus. Why? Because we know that one greater than us is holding us fast. God is faithful and true, and he will never, ever let you go. Let's look at the last point in our outlines, our hope. Verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our hope is in Jesus. Why? Because God's promise and God's oath are fulfilled in him. Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor. Now, you might think I know a lot about anchors because I was in the Navy, but I would also tell you that I flew, and so I spent all of about two weeks on a boat in the Navy. Um, so actually, I don't know, I didn't know a whole lot about anchors, but the basic idea is this. The anchor goes down into the depths of the water, and it grabs hold of the seabed, so that when the wind and the waves blow and batter the ship, the ship is held fast. It is not dashed against the rocks. Jesus is an anchor as well, but he's directionally different than an anchor for a ship. Whereas that anchor goes down into the murky depths, he has ascended into the bright heavenlies even into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God himself. And there, in the holy of holies, at the mercy seat, between the two cherubim, and above the Ark of the Covenant, he has anchored us to God. He has dropped his anchor there. He is our hope. And not a hope that is wishy-washy, like politicians like to speak about. Not a hope that is hopeless, like hoping the Rockies' management puts together a good team this year. Not a hope that may fail like money or achievement or even family or religion. Many of those are good things, gifts from God, but they are not a sure and steadfast hope. Our one true hope is Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected, breaking through into the Holy of Holies and anchoring us to God himself. When the storms of life come, he will hold you fast. When you succumb to temptation, when you think that he might actually turn his back on you because you've succumbed to temptation, he will hold you fast when you feel 
like your faith is failing, he will hold you fast. This is why when we talk about hope as Christians, we mean to say that we have confident assurance. This doesn't mean that we might not lose hope sometimes. God brings incredibly difficult things upon us. Look no further than Job. In a matter of moments, a man lost his wealth, his family, his health. Everything was absolutely nuked and obliterated and gone. What did he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. And while he may have never lost hope in God, he lost hope for his own life. Job 13, 15, Job says this, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. But only those, this is important, especially if you're our guest this morning, only those who have fled to Jesus for refuge have this hope. Only those who admit their guilt before God and repent of their sin can enjoy this relief and hope. Jesus is our refuge from the wrath of God against our sin, and only those who have forgone trust in everything else, forgone trust in everything else, and have fled to Jesus will find hope in him. Now, I want to conclude this morning by telling you a story of a man who held fast to his hope in Christ. His name is Andrew Stewart. If you could put the slide up, please. So these two guys up here, the guy on your left is a guy named Andrew Stewart. The guy on the right is a friend of mine named Pete. Some of you have actually met Pete. He's been our guest here at Orchard a couple of times. In Baltimore in 1983, a 14-year-old boy named DeWitt Duckett was assaulted in a hallway at a junior high. The assailant wanted his Georgetown University jacket. A fight ensued, and the assailant pulled a 22 caliber pistol and shot DeWitt in the neck and killed him. Three 16-year-old boys were accused and eventually found guilty of murdering the younger boy. They were sentenced to life in prison, but the boys were innocent. The evidence against them was circumstantial and spotty. They found the same jacket in one of the boys' lockers, but there was no blood or gunpowder residue on it, and his mother produced the receipt proving that she bought it for him. When their case was reopened, evidence showed they weren't even at the school at the time of the assault. And later, four eyewitnesses recanted, said they were coerced to testify against these three boys. These three men, including Andrew, spent 37 years in prison, literally the prime of their lives, incarcerated. My son Samuel was 12. That's three of Samuel's lives in prison. Along with Andrew was Alfred Chestnut, 
and Ransom Watkins. Now, my friend Pete got to know Andrew after his release, and they are now friends. Pete had told me about Andrew a year and a half ago. Said, I'd love for you to meet this guy sometime. And, you know, that was kind of that. And as I was preparing to preach for this sermon, the Lord just brought this, the memory of this to my mind. And in fact, I couldn't remember whether it was Pete that had told me the story or whether I'd seen it somewhere. So I Googled it, and these guys, they come up, and um, I just text Pete, hey, Pete, is this the guy? That you, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him. You want to talk to him? I said, sure. So Pete connected me with Andrew yesterday, and we spoke for 30 minutes. And I just want to share some of what he told me. I want to share some of that with you. Now, before I do this, sometimes we share stories as kind of object lessons, right? They help things kind of come to life for us, and that's a good thing. But I just want to be really careful here to not boil Andrew's life down into a nugget or whatever. Andrew is our brother in Christ. But his testimony is so powerful that we need to hear it. Let me tell you, Andrew loves the Lord. He bled Scripture as we spoke on the phone yesterday. If you've ever spoken with somebody who's known deep and severe suffering, there is a sense, and when you're in their presence of, I just need to be quiet and listen. So I did a lot of listening yesterday. It's actually kind of funny. As we wrapped up the call, he said, I just was thanking him. He said, you know, one thing I never have any problem with is sharing the gospel. It was humbling speaking with someone who had known such injustice and suffering and yet was so hopeful and so uplifting. So let me just share some of the things that he shared with me and I pray that they would be helpful to you. This is some of the things he said. He said, it's a story of heartache, it's a story of pain, but ultimately it's a story of triumph. If you tell my story, say that he was a mess for the first 16 years of his incarceration. I was all over the place. I didn't know who I was, who I wanted to be, where I was going. I was just a young man, confused, trying to survive in a place I shouldn't have been in the first place. Many a night and many a day, and let me just stop right there from my direct quotation. He must have said three or four times on our call, day, referring to the difficulty of the days and the nights of being incarcerated for so long, but especially the nights he mentioned were very, very hard. Many a night and many a day I sat back and wondered, what is it that I have to do to get an understanding of who Christ is, that he claims to be my Savior, and yet why do I feel so lost? And then it was the night before I was going to preach a sermon. I asked, why me? God, why me? And he spoke to me. Why not you? My grace is sufficient for you. And Andrew replied, but my soul aches.
My heart hurts. I have no comfort. I have no peace of mind. Jesus said to him, you have no peace, no comfort. Your heart hurts, your soul aches because you were trusting in the wrong thing. Trust in me. I asked him about hope. Did he ever lose hope of being released? He told me a story about going up for parole for the ninth time. And it actually seemed very likely that he would be released this time. Even his family was preparing for his return. The parole board came back and said no, a ninth time. Here's what he said. It crushed me. I went back to my bunk and said, I'm, I'm done. I can't take this. I can't take this neglect. I can't take this rejection. I'm not suited for this. The only thing I could think was, what kind of God who says he loves me could allow me to endure so much heartache, so much pain, so much struggle for something I haven't done? And one of his best friends visited him and said, hey, let's look at the word of God together. Look at what Paul went through. Look at what Job went through. Look at what the disciples went through. Then he said, show me in the Bible where it says this walk is going to be easy. If you can show me where it says it would be easy, then you can get mad at God. Andrew went on to say the reason it's not easy, that our walks aren't easy, is that it builds a testimony in you that no one can take from you. This testimony that God gives to each one of us is not for our benefit, it's for somebody else. God's working his purposes. As we wrapped up our call, Andrew shared something that I think is so appropriate to how we started our message this morning. It's all about trust. Who can you trust? Here's what he said. Perspective is so important. You should be thankful. That's what he said to me. You should be thankful that God chose somebody like you. He could have easily said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Instead, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because God so loved the world, and he so loved you, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He made his son, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Andrew went on to say, the most hurtful thing that has ever happened was when Jesus was on the cross dying and everything went black. So just stop for a moment. Andrew's suffering, the suffering I'm sure that I know that some of you have gone through, Job's suffering, nothing like what Jesus suffered on the cross. The most hurtful thing that has ever happened was when Jesus was on the cross dying and everything went black. God turned his back on Jesus. Andrew said, can you imagine your father turning his back on you at your most 
needed time. When you needed him the most. Andrew went on to say, the gift that we have then is this. Jesus has said that he will never turn his back on us, nor forsake us. We lose sight, and we don't understand God's unconditional love for us. And because we don't understand it, we don't trust like we should. We miss out on the fullness of the hope that God offers us in Christ. The last thought from Andrew that I'll just share here is to tie it back together. What he said kind of in concluding about all of his time in prison. Because of the love that Christ had for me, he never let me go. He kept calling me. He kept sending people to me. He kept saving me. This is the God of the Bible for us. Not many of us will ever see suffering like Andrew has seen. In fact, many of us have not seen much suffering at all, anything remotely like this, but some of us have in this church. God will never let you go. His promise and his oath are sure. And we have a steadfast anchor in Jesus Christ who's gone into the Holy of Holies on our behalf as our intercessor and our Savior. Please stand with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the testimony of Andrew this morning. Lord, even more, we thank you for your testimony of your faithfulness in his life in Abraham's life, in Job's life, and in the lives of those around us, Lord. Not many of us will see that kind of suffering, Lord, but I pray that we would hold up and support each other to be like that friend was to Andrew, to speak your truth into each other's lives with love and gentleness, Father, to remind one another of the great and good and sure and steadfast anchor that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you this day, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.